I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 27. Welcome to the 27th episode and a whole new season of the Life in Dub podcast. How are you all doing out there? I hope you're okay. Thanks to everyone who's got in touch over the last few weeks asking when Life in Dub is returning. It's nice to hear that the podcast has been missed and that so many of you have been tuning in every two weeks. Well, we're back with a great lineup of life story interviews from a wicked and diverse array of guests. So I hope you all enjoy listening to these interviews as much as I enjoy making them. Don't forget to tell your friends about Life in Dub. And remember, you can go back and listen to any of the previous 26 episodes from the first season at lifeindub.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, just email me, vibronics at gmail.com. This week, I want to talk a bit about what I've been up to since the end of the last season. I've been spending really a lot of time in the studio, obviously no live sessions, no travels. I'm really missing all these things so much. And after the last countless years of traveling all over the place and meeting up with so many people, it's something that's really missed. But I've been trying to make the most of the time by getting stuck into a load of new music projects that I'll be talking about as they get released over the coming year. I've also been busy with the Scoops Gold Disc Classic series, digging into the archive of Vibronics music, remastering and pressing some long lost classics. I've got to thank everyone who supported the series because everyone has sold out. So thanks to all who've been getting involved with these releases. The latest release is the remix I made of the singer blue track, If A No Jar, originally recorded with Conscious Sounds in London. I always love what Dougie did with this original mix of the track, using that familiar Dre beat, but turning it into a proper, heavy sound system anthem. For my remix, I continued with that same Dre melody, but played some melodica and some acoustic guitar to help really bring out that unmistakable tune. And Singer Blue is one of those vocalists who has such a unique and distinctive voice. You could never mistake him for anyone else. So this track has remained a real favorite of mine since I released it way back in 2007. As with most of the Gold Disc Classic series, I managed to dig out a previously unreleased dub mix for the B-side to make it a special release and reissue, and a little different to the original pressing. If a No Jar is out now, it's on Scoops Records, and you can get it on Bandcamp or vibronics.co.uk. Grab a copy while you can, because all the others have sold out and they really don't stick around very long. This week, my guest is Dennis Bavel, the Barbados-born legend of reggae who's truly lived a life in dub. From his early outings in sound systems in London way back in the 1970s, through Matumbi, Linton Gwesi Johnson and beyond, few people have made such an impact in the world of dub and reggae as Dennis Bavel. As well as all these things mentioned, we talk about him writing a soundtrack for the film Babylon, and it's great to carry on with the story of this seminal movie after talking in the last episode to Brinsley Ford. We also get stuck into the Small Axe TV series and loads of other things. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Dennis Bavel, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Uh, great to have a Bayesian on the podcast. My good, good friend, Madhu Messenger, is a Bayesian, so I kind of learned a lot about Barbados over the years. Well done, man. Did he teach you to say, God bless? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, but what I'm doing at the start of the podcast is I ask everyone uh, the same question, which is to name a track that's been really important in your life, something really pivotal that you look back and think, yeah, that really kind of changed things for me. And it's never easy to name one track, but I don't know if you've got an example of a, a track like that you want to mention. I have to say 
that the first uh, piece of music that really grabbed me, uh, being a guitar player, was when I listened to Jimi Hendrix, Third Stone from the Sun, in 1967. Um, I noticed the, the use of echo and what we now call dub. Anybody care to listen to that track? You will see what I mean. And that tune was like, you know, it's, it's a far out tune and it's a far out tune if you listen to it now, but in 1967, it must have sounded really quite bonkers. Um, I was so into um, Jimi Hendrix that pretty any, anything he played, it shone for me. And because you started out as a guitar player, is that right? That's kind of, that, that's the stuff that you learned to play first? That's right. I started out as a guitar player in uh, my school band when I was 13. I had two of those. And then by the time I, you know, hit upon forming a reggae band, Matumbi, um, the guitar was the, the instrument that I chose to play. But sometime later, when I was uh, recording with Dennis Harris at Eve Studios, he said to me, I've got a guitar player that will wipe the floor with you. You better play bass because your bass playing is good, but your guitar playing is not up to much. And then um, I accepted the challenge and he brought a guitar player by the name of John Kapai. And John Kapai is the man who wrote... I'm in love with the dreadlocks for Brown Sugar. And he played all the instruments except the drums. Leroy Green played drums there. And uh, the song Black Pride uh, for Brown Sugar. And Karen Wheeler, uh, who later joined Soul to Soul, was the, the lead vocalist on that. And um, those were records that were made for the Lover's Rock label. How did you get to be like a multi-instrumentalist? Because I, like yourself, I started playing guitar and I kind of, I can pick up other stuff in the studio, especially with technology kind of assisting me. But back in the day, you had to play stuff. So it's kind of, you know, I, I don't know how you become like a multi-instrumentalist to be able to play all these instruments. Well, the reason behind me becoming a multi-instrumentalist was that my dad was very sceptical of me becoming a musician his take on it was, you become a musician, you'll never eat a meal, in a decent meal in a decent restaurant, right? So I figured I would um, avail myself of the knowledge of how to be a drummer, a bass player, a guitar player, a keyboard player, sound engineer, so that in any walk of the music, I could work, you know, and I would always be in work. If I wasn't being a bass player, I'd be a guitarist, I'd be a keyboard player, uh, you know, and I'd, I'd write parts for horns. Um, just a, a general dog's body in music. And therefore, it, also, when I was recording with people, if someone didn't play what I wanted them to play, I was able to take that instrument and show them what I meant. That's sick, because when, when you say to your parents, like... I want to do music. It's kind of a lot of people are shaking their head, thinking it's like, is this a good career to move into? Absolutely. I mean, like you go and tell Stevie Wonder that he's in the wrong trade. That music is not good. It won't sell. No. You're talking about playing guitar and stuff, but I know that you were involved in sound system. Now, what 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 were you doing? What kind of came first? Was it playing music or playing sound? Playing music came first. I was first. 
a guitarist in my first band in, when I was 13 years old in secondary school and um, then moved on to another, another band when I was about 15. And by the time I got to 17-year-old, I was thinking, yeah, reggae, reggae, reggae. And um, I kind of, at the same time, started a group called Matumbi, and about a year before, I got involved with a sound system called Sufferers Hi-Fi. The podcast is called Life in Dub, so obviously, you know, music central to it, but the sound system thing is really, like, a big part of it as well. So what 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 was it like running a sound back in then? And again, I, I ask this everybody to everybody generally, but, like, in those old days of running sound system, I mean, what, what was your experience? Well, in 1969... My friend Owen Kerr uh, approached me with a view to buying some of the dub plates that I was making for a sound system that he was setting up with uh, two brothers, uh, Francis brothers. And um, he came over and I played him some of my dub plates and he was like, I want them all. So I was like, this sound you're setting up, have you got a DJ? He was like, no, not yet. I'm going, well, that'll be me. I'll put the dubs in, and that'll be me coming into the sound as a DJ with these dub plates that I made. Because at that time, it was difficult to get a dub plate that no one else had because the, the people in Jamaica were making music to sell on the large market. I mean, someone might got a dub plate of it, but um, the whole thing was that the song was, you know, then being advertised by the use of this dub plate. So I made my own that... Um, no one could play my dub plates, so when we played a dub plate, it was really a dub plate, exclusive, you know. And when you were playing sound, were you were you playing mainly playing other sounds, or were you just playing on your own as a sound? It's like what what kind of what were the sessions like? When I was playing a sound system, my sound system played uh, as the regular sound system for a little club we had in Wandsworth at the WCCR on Friday nights. Then we graduated to uh, um, a youth club in Stockwell called Lansdowne um, on Sundays. Then we got a gig to be the resident sound in a club in Ladbroke Grove called The Metro. And that was when it really kicked off because um, we found ourselves going higher up the ladder of sound systems and having to um, defend our rise. And when you say defend, I mean, what, defending it against other sounds and, like, a lot of competition, yeah, yeah, I guess? Yeah, yeah, defending our right to call ourselves um, a sound system. I guess it all depended on how heavy your amplifier was, how many loudspeakers you had, and how much good music you had that would be um, comparable to the other sound systems at the top of the ladder, like... Coxon, Duke Reed, Soprano B, you know, sound systems like that. Um, in fact, we were around before King Tubby's came or before Shaka came. And what was um what what were these sessions like? I mean, if you <clears throat> if you had to describe one of these sessions to someone, then you know, what 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 kind of what kind of stuff was going on? Our Sunday night sessions were the most exciting because uh the club was in Stockwell and we opened at 7.30. And if you weren't there by 8 p.m., you wouldn't be able to get in because it was oversubscribed. And um, that was where we kind of, I don't know, happened upon our amplification. Uh, we met a guy who made amplifiers. 
and uh, we got him to build us uh, a custom-built 600-watt amplifier. And about that time, a lot of people were only playing on 300 watts, so uh, we were quite louder and heavier than them. And then we graduated to four of these 600-watt amplifiers, so we were playing 2,000, you know, 2,400 watts. And meanwhile, some other sounds were stuck at 600. That's it, because there's the amount of power that people are used to now. It just wasn't like that back then, was it? It's kind of, because everything was like kind of homemade and hand-built and stuff, I guess. Yep. Uh, the guy who made our amplifier was a guy called Errol Anglin, and he also made uh, the amplifier of Fat Man. And we always thought that Fat Man was a very mellow sound, so that was the kind of ampli amplification that was the kind of amplification we, you know, were interested in acquiring and did. And, and say, did, and did, did you play other sounds, as in, like, there'd be two or three sounds in the same hall, or was that something that kind of came a bit later, that sort of clash kind of meeting thing? Yeah. Um, the multiple sounds in one hall were um, synonymous with the sound clash, and, um, you know, the, the audience would be the judge of who, who played the the most likable record or whose amplification was the cleanest and the heaviest you know um i would at when i re when i was the resident sound in uh ladbrook grove at the metro every friday night i would bring another sound system just so we could have a bit of a you know run off against each other and quite often um Fat Man and I had some memorable runoffs against each other. Uh, they weren't violent. They were just um, music exposed. And him and I, you know, were the favorites for clashing. And then in 1975, New Year's Eve, 1975, I brought Shaka to the Metro to have a face off with him. And Shaka must have been a young man then. I mean, this is like a long time ago. It was certainly a long time ago, um, and uh, it was a very memorable night. And can can you tell me something about that night? I'd love to hear about it. Oh, um, I think I got one over on him when he played uh, a Burning Spear dub plate, which was um, a tune by Burning Spear called Swell Headed. You know, he's a lucky thing I never get swell headed. You know, and... Um, he thought he was the only one carrying that. But I was carrying uh, three or four different cuts of the same dub. So when I played it back on him, the crowd was like, oh, look at that, look at that, you know. <laughs> and uh, we carried on from there. That's him. I, I love hearing about all these sound system stories because it's like, yeah, just sort of before my time and like when it was new and fresh and everything. Um, but you were also obviously... Like playing music, as in you talked about Mutumbi, and that's like a you, you were doing live shows with Mutumbi, or that was mainly in the studio. Yep, yep. Mutumbi was uh, very much in flow at this time. In fact, um, one of the first jobs we had was to be the backing band of Pat Kelly when Pat Kelly was in the charts with How Long, and we were his backing band. And following that came Ken Booth. Johnny Clark, I Roy, Derek Morgan, Nicky Thomas, um, all these people 
uh, we supplied the backing for. And so we had quite a name as a group. And um, me building a name as a sound system person, in fact, at one point, I had to choose, and uh, the group won. Yeah, it's not, it's not easy to do both. Um, and do you remember the first time you went into a studio? Because obviously people know, think of Dennis Bavel as like, you know, studio producer and whatever. I mean, when did you first kind of encounter a recording studio? My first time in a recording studio uh, in this country was uh, a studio called Dr. Bird in Fulham. And it was um, owned by an Australian guy called Graham. And uh, I was taken there by uh, two older musicians who actually liked the way I played because even though I was young, I could hold my own with the older boys. And uh, we went there and um, the group was called Alsatian and Mongoose. And what what was your um, what was your feeling about the studio? Because it's like I remember when I first went in the studio, like in the in the eighties, and it was like I was just amazed, and I kind of I kind of haven't left since really. My first impression of the studio was what a wonderful place. I can um, let my musical talents rip here, and uh, have them recorded and come out, you know, to the public probably on Trojan Records or on Doctor Bird Records or Duke Reed Record. You know, uh, I was ready to make my mark in the world of music. And obviously in those days, like, it, you know, there was, um, um, you know, re- reggae was a big thing. And, you know, obviously Matumbi had a lot of success and stuff, and it must have been, um, you know, must have been quite like, exciting times, I guess. And, and reggae was a bit more in the sort of major music industry as well back then. Absolutely. Reggae had um, come to roost in the, the British charts, I mean, with the likes of uh, Lee Perry and the Upsetters, the instrumentals. Um, Pat Kelly, as I said, had already made his mark in the charts. Nicky Thomas was making his mark there. Dandy Livingstone and people like that. It, it seemed that, um, you know, by the time Desmond Decker had topped the number one spot with Israelites, it, reggae was ready to, like, take over the music charts. And in fact... Um, it, it it began to become the very, very popular music in the UK. And that, like, gives you the chance to actually, like, sell a lot of records and pack out shows and, like, kind of really have some success with it, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, by the time Dandy Livingstone had that song, Susan Beware of the Devil, uh, there were a lot of young kids at school that had previously been prop heads or rock heads were changing to dub heads. And when when did you start sort of getting into the studio and like being a producer and an engineer and sort of, you know, bossing people around and making things happen in the studio? When did that sort of stuff start to happen? Because obviously a lot of bands go in the studio, they record and they, they leave and that's it, but you seem to get more involved in it. Well, in, 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 in the instance of getting really involved in recording studios and playing and stuff. At my school in Wandsworth in 1968, there was a recording studio built. This recording studio was built for the use of the English department to create sound effects for the yearly school play. 
I decided that, you know, it could also be used to record music and took my musician friends in there and, and made some, did some recording. I had learned how to become a recording engineer, a studio engineer. I, you know, I'd versed myself, I'd immersed myself in the use of the equipment and how it worked. So by the time, you know, Matumbi was recording in big studios, I was able to say uh, in frequency wise, what frequencies I wanted to be put in the pot to make whatever sound I wanted to. And a lot of engineers would say, why don't you do it yourself? And I'd just, you know, they'd move over and let me just equalize, you know, and and it began from there, really. And I guess, you know, if you're doing production and getting into like the early days of Darb and stuff is, I guess you had to really work it to get, set. now it's easy to buy a machine or a plug-in or whatever and make a sound, but then... I guess you had to really work the studio to get, like, you know, these these effects and sounds happening. One of the first things I did uh, in the recording studio was to make a loop. I took um, that Bob and Marcia, um, Young, Gifted and Black, which was also another reggae number one at the time, and uh, it was the beginning of when people used, uh, had version side on the record so there'd be the vocal side and then on the b side would be the same thing again without the voice and i i took um advantage of lifting four four bars from that and making it into something else and getting one of the members of staff to play trombone and flute and make a a version of guantanamera this is like, that's like the earliest days of sampling possible by the sound of things. Those were the days. There you go. See, all you music producers out there moaning about having to install a new plugin, you never had to get a broomstick to keep the tape playing so you could actually play the whole the, the loop you're playing. So it's very different days back then. And something else that I'm sort of interested in, I mean, there's, there's so many the things you've been involved in, um, but like um, Lovers Rock, um, Silly Games... And you were involved in that track, is that right? Yes, um, in the in the instance of Silly Games, in the case of Silly Games, I had uh, thought that a drum pattern that I'd come up with would be the drum pattern to dethrone Sly Dunbar. And um, I taught this pattern to Drummy Zeb, the drummer of Aswad, and said, I want you to play this pattern for four minutes and keep it steady, right? And then I, in the control room, I'm playing the bass and I'm t- telling him, when I, the bass plays the slow line, which is when I play that, that's the verse. And when I play the fast bass line, go boom, 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 that's when she's singing, Silly And then once we put that together, um, I brought in Janet, taught her the song, and the rest is our story. Um, the high note, I mean, that's like, what, what was it like being in the studio when that high note was recorded? Because I guess you've heard her sing it a million times in rehearsal or live or whatever, but in the studio, when you're capturing that high note, I actually taught her the high note. The high note was written into the tune. 
that for me would have been the highlight of the tune because um, I was trying to create a tune like the uh, Memorex advert where uh, Ella Fitzgerald sang a high note and cracked a glass. And I was, and you know, I was, you know, hell bent, if you want to say, on creating a tune that climaxed in that way. And when I had, I had to find a singer to could sing that note. And Janet Kay was the one that I chose to do that. And it's fair to say that that tune really blew up. That tune blew up because it was a different kind of, it wasn't a two-chord reggae tune. It was it was a run-of-the-mill pop tune with a reggae beat. And it had that high note that I knew young girls would be stood in front of the mirror with their hairbrush trying to emulate it. <laughs> nice, nice. And then, like, one of the other things you've been involved in, like, heavily um, is the work with Linton Quasi Johnson, obviously, which is like, I mean... You know, I absolutely love those recordings. And how, how how did that all come about, that sort of relationship and those recordings? Well, I met Linton when he came to interview Matumbi at a club called The Four Aces, where we played uh, one Sunday night, and uh, we didn't get booed off the stage because uh, every group that played at The Four Aces on a Sunday night, after two or three songs, the audience would, you know, run them off. And so when Matumbi's turn to play at the Four Aces came, I just, we just rehearsed all the latest uh, reggae tunes with the B-side, the dub side, and we played the dub thing. And uh, we did a show. Nobody clapped, but nobody booed. So we conquered that. And Linton came to interview us about that. And whilst he was interviewing me, uh, he mentioned that he, you know, was thinking about putting music to his poetry and and wondered if I would help. And I said, yes. And so when the time came, he said, right, I'm ready. And we went and we always been in the studio together through all his albums. And were you surprised by how successful that was? Because it's like, you know, poetry and music isn't always the most like commercially successful thing to do. I knew that it would be popular because of the subject matter. What he was often talking about was the injustice against black people or injustice against people, full stop. In fact, um, when Blair Peach lost his life on that march in Southall, anti-fascist march, uh, Linton wrote a poem, Reggae for Peach. And I was like, oh, okay. Is that any going, I think that man has lost his life in the fight for... Um, you know, justice and um, uh, racial equality. And I think it should be recorded that the world hears that the police killed him. And I was like, boy, you're getting a bit heavy there. But 15 years after we made that record, I watched TV and saw that the Metropolitan Police were paying compensation to Blair Peach's common-law wife. And, and part of that is through the, the, the way that you raise the awareness of it through like that song absolutely in fact quite a lot of the instances that linton reports in his poetry were actually things that happened to him when he says in sonny's letter them dumping in in belly and it turned to jelly them kicking in him you know and he was talking about having received or having been on the receiving end of such blows at the hands of police officers. 
And when you've got music that's that sort of militant and, and uncompromising, is it was it a surprise that it actually kind of broke out and became quite successful and it wasn't just... No, uh, I don't think it was a surprise to me because um, what it was was that people had to hear these things and to know that they were true. Yeah, I mean, Lennon's the voice to do that as well because it's like that that comes across like totally in, in, in what he does. Oh, yeah, Linton um, at the age of 19 spoke like a man of 39. And it, one of the other things I'm kind of interested in as well is um, is the film Babylon, of course, and like the last guest on the first season of my podcast was Brinsley Ford, and we talked a lot about, you know, obviously... You know, he was in the movie and in Aswad and whatever, and then you know you were involved as well. And it's like, you know, it's such an influential film, and it's had such a long life. And I was wondering if you want to tell us anything about your perspective on that. Well, whilst um, I was approached to create the music for Babylon, in fact, I must tell you that the director of the show had asked Linton to write music for the film and Linton's response was don't mess about that's Dennis's job <laughs> you know and so he you know in, approached me to to be the, the composer of music to, to fit the film and uh, I had them install a video recorder in the studio and, and I watched the daily shootings of the rushes and they in, that informed what music I was going to um, record. And in fact, one memory of the whole thing was that once I'd seen the footage of the the police um, chasing Brinsley as he walked in the street at night in a in an unmarked car, and I noted that that car was a Hillman Hunter, and there they were effectively hunting that man. So. I wrote a piece and called it Manhunter, and that piece had to stretch from the beginning of where he notices that they're following him till um, they catch him, beat him up, let him go, and that piece of music had many different moods. It's called Manhunter. Because I, I can't think of many other or any other examples really where reggae music has been like soundtrack music where it's been written for a film but it's been so effective. It's kind of because most people think of reggae as like stuff to dance to or for the sound or whatever. But to to use it atmospherically like that, it's amazing. Yeah, I agree. They they usually think it as a, as a background. Yeah. Now, I wanted to create music that was worthy of Isaac Hayes or Curtis Mayfield, you know, in the many soundtracks that they had done. So I set my sights high. And, and you know, looking back now, it's like, because with the whole, <clears throat> it's become like the the movie to show the history of like where the struggle for sound system came from. And now you've got sound systems, you know, in Chile and in Colombia and in the Philippines, all over the world now. And then the people in the different places that discovered the whole sound system culture thing, they all rally around um, the film Babylon. And, like, you know, is it, I guess you had no idea how important it would be back then, I guess. I had always hoped the film would be a hit. And um, I was disappointed when it got the certificate X when we went to uh, the Cannes Film Festival. But upon reflection now, the amount of ganja that was smoked, and I don't think they could have got any other certificate. Um, 
the thing was though that when the film was proposed to be released in America, it was knocked back. It was, they were told, no, we're not showing that. And then now, 39 years later, the film has just been released to the American audience. And um, Brinsley and I were in New York for the release, and it packed out the, the Brooklyn Academy of Arts, right? Brooklyn Music Academy, it packed it out for a whole week, three shows a day. It's just crazy, isn't it? That something that's like, there's some sort of timeless thing about that movie that's like, you know, I just, nobody can think of anything else that captures like what was going on like that movie does. I agree. And um, it's a sad thing that Franco Rosso, the guy who directed it, is no longer with us and wasn't here to see. America finally released that film. And how, just keeping on the Babylon film thing, I mean, why why do you think he did such a good job of, like, making a great film? Because he got this, like, what is he, Italian-British guy making a film about, like, reggae sound system culture and and police brutality? Mm. Well, before, before, before Franco Rosso had um, embarked on the script of Babylon with uh, Martin Stellman, what had happened was that Franco had edited a program that I made for the BBC, um, BBC Schools, and he had also directed the film Dread Beaten Blood with Linton. Uh, he lived quite close to a lot of reggae people. So reggae was always kind of the thing he was going to make a film about, sound systems, and no one had made a film involving a sound system. I mean, the nearest film that came to that was uh, Jimmy Cliff, uh, Harder They Come, but that was about the music business, and here Franco was um, um, exploring the sound system world. And he, he, he just seemed, yeah, he, he just seemed to capture it so well and, like, authentically. And, and I guess when it came out, did it do well or did it kind of like, you know, what, what was the impact when it first came out? Because now it's so well known. When the film first came out, it was not that well received. Um, cinemas wouldn't show it. Um, I think it had to be shown privately. We went to, the, it was the British Film uh, Institute, BFI. It was their entry into the Cannes Film Festival in 1980. And did did you guys go down to Cannes to kind of, like, represent it at all? Or? Of course. Uh, we were all in Cannes, you know, on our yacht and giving uh, big <laughs> parties and living large. It was nice. Yeah, well, you know, congratulations for being part of, like, something that's, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's stood the test of time like that. It certainly stood the test of time. And uh, now Sir Steve McQueen has uh, brought us back to Cannes again, uh, with the Lovers Rock movie. Yeah, and, and also, like, the, the small acts thing, that's another thing I kind of, you know, obviously moving it forward quite a lot. Yes, Small Axe is a very interesting series, and I'm so happy to have been involved with it. And it's something, again, that people from, like, outside of the UK who, who are fans of, of, like, reggae music and reggae culture have picked up on and noticed and are, are interested in, and it's like, you know, that's kind of... It's you know it, it's a big thing definitely. And what what what's been your involvement in that? Well, my involvement in uh, the Lovers Rock 
um, section of the Small Axe movies was that um, Steve McQueen called me in and asked me if I would write a piece of music for um, for the movie Lovers Rock. And I did, and then I noticed in the script there was a part for a Beijing bus conductor. So I said to him, hey, I should play that because there was only one word and it was tickets. And um, my dad came to this country as a bus conductor and so there would be, you know, the irony of me playing my dad in a movie when I only had one word to say would have been great. And he said, oh, I've got a bigger plan for you than that. And then he handed me the part of Milton, the neighbor upstairs of the girl who was having the party downstairs and getting myself in, getting invited to that party and actually being there in a sort of cameo role while they rinsed out silly games and it's like obviously it, it the whole thing's got a certain style to it and it's not to like everyone's taste but the way that it captures you know the authentic the way the way it captures like the look of the time like the buildings and the cars and the streets and everything is like you know it's amazing it was an accurate capture of the blues dance scene. Okay, so it was fictional. But then you got to realize that who has ever made a documentary about the blues dance? That would be pretty boring. So, I mean, the script, um, Corsia Newland wrote and um, Steve McQueen wrote, it, it was in part far-fetched, but that's the nature of fiction. You know, and all the people that thought that it should have been uh, um, a documentary, because that's all they're used to seeing, right, were probably a bit disappointed. But what I want to say to all of them is, do you think Tarzan's real? Hey, you must have watched that. And, you know, I don't know, people just can't take things, uh, some people, that is, just can't take things you know their value and and i think it was very well lit very well shot very well directed and um interesting to watch and anyone who says that there isn't a mental health issue in the the black community they're so wrong anyone who says that there isn't an issue of unwanted attention in the black community, they're so wrong. And these were the things that people go, well, I never saw that happen at a blues dance. No, because you're not a writer. You don't have an imagination. Go and tell J.K. Rowling that um, Harry Potter is rubbish because nothing like that has ever happened and it couldn't possibly happen. And to have those issues, like, at the fore in, like, peak time not national TV as well to deal with like kind of or at least attempt to deal with institutional racism and say mental health issues and whatever is um, yeah amazing to see absolutely you see there are people who would have other people believe that everything is hunky dory in the black community and blacks never do anything um, outside of good well sorry. Yeah, it's bold, bold stuff. Definitely bold stuff to be seen on the TV, and like, and I think it'll have like you know a legacy. I mean, you know, think about think about the film Goodfellas. Do you think that the Italians got up in arms and go, "Hey, 
that's not right. They're, they're killing people. No, it's a film, you idiot. Yeah, that's it. And you have these issues, you know, it's not comfortable talking about uh, these issues for a lot of people. Or not. And um, what about all those young black actors and actresses who were given a chance to shine on national TV? Wasn't that a great thing? Yeah, I mean, how, how many other times are you going to get the opportunity to see that that... that big ensemble like black cast in especially something that's like as I say on like peak time TV No I think um, Steve actually hit the nut on the head with all that whole um, I mean when you saw the the um, Leroy Logan one right how accurate was that you know when he as a police officer goes out to make an arrest calls for backup and they all stay at the station playing pool and don't even go, you know, to assist him. No, that's it. To be able to deal with those kind of issues, like, full on, it's like, yeah. No, no, hats off to him, definitely. Definitely. It's like, really, like, you know, like like, like, like nothing else on the TV for a good while, definitely. And probably, I hope more of that is to come. And one other thing we were sort of talking about when we were setting up the interview and stuff, you were talking about, um, like, going to Africa and, like, doing some recording as well. It's like, I know you're like to travel around here, there and everywhere. So Yes, um, since 1983, I've been the sound engineer and sometimes the spare, in, uh, spare musician for Alpha Blondie in the Ivory Coast. And uh, we made, I don't know, some 16, 17 albums. And just last October, I had the pleasure of um, slipping out of the UK and going there for two weeks to officiate on his next offering. Um, what's it like working with Alpha Blondie? Working with Alpha Blondie is a gas because we laugh so much. We tell each other's jokes and um, then we get serious with the music. You know, we spend, and um, Alpha's been building a studio in his house since 1996. And I've been procuring equipment for him to kind of make that studio up to world class. And now he not, he doesn't need to go to France to record and mix. Now um, he just brings Dennis Bovell to Abidjan. Nice. And is, what, are there any differences to like recording um, on in Ivory Coast? as opposed to recording in, like, you know, Clapham or whatever? Well, the difference in recording in the Ivory Coast is that it's warm when you go outside, you know. Um, the equipment is very much up to scratch because whenever there's a new piece of equipment that he needs, uh, we discuss it, then I buy it and bring it over. No, oh, nice, nice. And what, what, what else can we expect to see from uh, Dennis Pavel? Anything else you're kind of working on at the moment? Uh, um, I've been working with some musicians called Double Standard in Vienna. And they were working with the Firehouse crew in Jamaica. They came back with the project. Uh, they wanted me to mix it. Uh, but the German record company said, hey, Dennis, we want you to sing this project. And I was, you know, humbled by the fact that one of the songs that they had chosen to record was a song that I wrote uh, and came out on the first Matumbi album on EMI, a song called Hypocrite. So this is like um, Dennis Bavel voicing and vocalising these tunes? Yeah, this is Dennis Bavel meets Double Standard in Vienna. Um, and uh, I'm 
dressed as the big Gulliver character and uh, dwarf. I'll send you the the artwork and uh, the album. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear, definitely. So, and the singer, do you enjoy singing? It's like a, you know, I guess you've always picked up the mic back in the day, but it's like, you know, something you enjoy doing. This was a challenge as to whether or not I would sing some of their favourite reggae songs. And they, you know, wanted to make versions of these tunes, as you'll see. And um, I thought, yeah, I'll do that. It was in 2019, uh, November, and um, I was getting ready to go to America to um, join some friends there. And so it seemed a good thing to do just before Christmas in um, 2019. And now the, the record's ready and uh, the record company ready to put it out. And you know, looking back, obviously, someone who's had such a long, illustrious career as yourself and obviously still busy doing stuff, it's kind of, is, is it, how do you feel about having such a long career when you look back to think about when you started out? and Well, from the time that I started 50 years ago till now, I feel blessed to have been um, all over the world um, in, you know, some of the best um, situations ever. I mean, I remember touring with Peter Tosh and Mick Jagger when they had that Walk and Don't Look Back hit out and touring with Ian Drury and the Blockheads, touring with Edwin Collins um, after I produced the Orange Juice album, Texas Fever, and, um, you know, touring around with various other people and uh, enjoying it. Nice, nice. Well, what, what I do at the end of um, the interview is I ask everyone the same question, which is like, I've got this book of dub and I write everyone's name in it and just wonder what people would want, each guest would want associated with their name. So if I write Dennis Pavel in my book of dub, what, what would you want written next to it, like associated with your, with your name and your career? So in your book, um, Dennis Pavel... No dub left undone. Nice, nice. That's great. That's great. Well, Dennis, it's been a pleasure uh, doing this interview with you. You taking the time to talk to me. I mean, such an interesting career. So, like a real honour for the podcast. So, thanks. Thanks for taking part. Thank you for asking me to take part, Steve. It's been wonderful. Thanks for joining me and Dennis for this 27th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to visit the website lifeindub.com if you want to listen back to any of the previous episodes or if you want to pick up a copy of the Gold Disc Scoops reissue series. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell people about it, help share it and help get the stories out to more and more people. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.